Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you need a Bible, you can grab a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1152 in that Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. And we are back into our series. Uh, we took a break last week. We had the Coopers here. Wasn't that awesome to have them here and hear about what God was doing in their ministry as they were serving in the Dominican Republic? Uh, that was our Mission Sunday, which we do as part of our Thanksgiving offering. And so we stuck a pin in the series for a while, but uh, we are back into it today. This is actually week three of our series that we've called The Upside down kingdom and we're going to spend the fall uh, going through this series and the heart of the series is is that when Jesus arrived here on earth he landed and he began proclaiming a message that said repent for the kingdom of heaven is here or the kingdom of heaven has come near that when Jesus came, he was starting his kingdom reign already, uh, not fully realized yet, but when Jesus came to earth, he was beginning to build his kingdom now, that the kingdom of heaven is not just something we will get to one day when we pass away or when the Lord returns. The kingdom of heaven has started on earth already. And Jesus came to teach us what that kingdom was like and to model for us what that kingdom was like. And for those of us who have put our hope in Jesus and are following after him, we are citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we want to know what does that mean for us? How are, these, uh, how are citizens of the kingdom to live this out? Because when Jesus came, he taught us that this kingdom has laws, this kingdom has commandments, this kingdom has a culture, this kingdom has a way that it's supposed to impact the world. And so as citizens of that kingdom, we want to know, well, what are those commandments? What is this culture we are to be living out? And this kingdom of heaven that Jesus has taught and modeled for us very often is very different than the way we might naturally want to live. That my flesh has a way that it wants to live that is very focused on self and selfishness and sin. That the world would teach us to live very, very differently. The devil certainly would want us to live a certain way. And often the ways of the kingdom of heaven are backwards to the way that our, our natural instincts might want to live or the way the world is telling us to live. The ways of the kingdom of heaven are often upside down. They are often opposite to the way the flesh or the devil or the world would want us to live. And so our tagline for the series has been to learn the ways of of the kingdom is to find the will of the king. That we are wanting to live out lives that are pleasing to Jesus. We are wanting to live in a way that the Lord looks at our lives and is happy with the way in which we're living. That we can stand before him one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as we learn about the kingdom and the laws of the kingdom, the commandments of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom, as we learn to live that way, we are really finding the will of God and learning how to live in his will more and more. And it's a challenging thing in the world we live in. We've talked about it for the first two weeks of the series already, uh, because the world we live in now is very much wrapped up in, in me. It's wrapped up in myself. It's wrapped up in what I want or what I can do. Uh, it's wrapped up in what is best for me or how I can look to myself and, and my needs and my wants and my desires. And uh, the culture very much leans that way. Our flesh naturally leans that way. The devil from the very beginning has been trying to get us focused on ourselves and not focused on God. And so it's an ongoing challenge. The ways of this kingdom really are upside down. 
I knew a pastor once and he told me a story that uh, when he goes out to a restaurant sometimes, he will uh, say, go to a pizza place and he's sitting down to order his pizza and everything about a restaurant is all about you, right? Like there's literally somebody waiting on you. We, we call them waiters, that's what they do. They serve you, it's all about you and what we can do for you and, and it's for money obviously, it's not like out of the goodness of their heart, but they are coming to wait upon you. And so he was one who would say, uh, I hate olives. That's one of his, uh, his opinions in life. He's obviously a pagan and he's wrong, but that's where he's at. And so he would say, I'm not an olive person. And so he said, sometimes when I go to a restaurant, I will deliberately order olives on something. And he says, I do that just to prove to myself that it's not all about me. It's not about my whims or my desires or my beck and call. I do it to prove to my will that, that I'm in charge and my flesh isn't. And so I do something that's kind of counter to what my flesh would want just to prove that I can. He would do that from time to time. Or he would say, sometimes a movie will come out. He was a big action guy. So whatever, you know, the, big, the latest Avengers movie or whatever would come out. And he would say, I'm dying to see it. And he said, I, I won't go see it. I'll purposely decide not to go to see it. Because again, I just wanna to prove to myself that I can do that. I wanna strengthen my self-discipline. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with the movie, not that there's anything wrong with olives or, or not liking olives or loving olives. I mean, loving olives is better, but it's not like that's that big a deal. But for him, part of it, his motivation was just, when I have this flesh that says, do what's best for you, when I live in a world that says, hey, you deserve this and you deserve that and it's all about you, when I've got an enemy whispering in my ear saying, what about you, focus on you? He says, I wanna actively choose ways to be different than that. That was part of how he tried to live out this idea. Uh, that it is not all about us. I heard a comedian once, Tina Fey, she was talking about parenting. She's not a believer as far as I can see, but she was talking about being a parent of a toddler and her toddler was in daycare and they were teaching the toddler this song that said, I'm the most important person in the world. And Tina said, that's the worst thing we should be teaching our toddlers. They already think that and that's not good. And so she was just talking about, again, so how do, this, again, non-Christian, not coming from a Christian perspective, but just, oh, how do we uh, raise our kids in this world that's constantly telling us that it is all about you? And if you don't like something, then you should raise a fuss. And if you don't like something, you should bail. And if you don't like something, uh, you know, you shouldn't feel that way because it's all about you and what you can get out of it. The way of the kingdom of heaven is very, very different. And so last time we talked, two weeks ago when we talked, we talked about, first of all, and most importantly, uh, of setting our priorities straight that it's not about us because it's ultimately about Jesus, right? It's ultimately about the king. We are the servants and he is the king. We are not equals. And even as he calls himself our father and calls himself our friend, and there are pictures of intimacy that were given in scripture, we don't ever want to lose our sense of uh, he's God and we're not. That was the message two weeks ago. We're going to take it a step further today, adding upon that uh, as we talk about not just about, uh, it's not about us, it's about God. But as followers of Jesus, as Je Jesus, Jesus, it's also not about me because it's supposed to be about you in my life. It's not about me and what I get. It's about how can I serve you? How can I put you first? How can I encourage you and bless you? How can I lift you up? So it's not just about the fact that it's not about me because it's all about Jesus. That's absolutely true and that's the more important one. But it's also not supposed to be all about me in my life because it's supposed to be about what can I do for you? 
and about what you can do for me in your walk with God yourself. It's about how do we serve others and put others first. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God and then to love your neighbor. Like those, that's the most important thing, Jesus said. And so today we're going to talk about how we put others first and how we're called to do that. I'm going to show you a clip here. It's from the movie Spartacus cinema classic history here and i have shown it here before it's a scene coming at the very end of the movie spartacus it's a true story uh, was a slave who led a great revolt against the roman empire the roman empire was built entirely on slavery and spartacus uh, led a bunch of slaves in revolt against the empire ultimately they were crushed the rebellion did not work the roman empire was too strong but at this scene i'm about to show you it's towards the end of the movie uh, the revolt has been crushed there's just a few prisoners left and rome has come and they can't find Spartacus. They are looking for who the man is because the man is going to be tortured horribly. He's going to be completely uh, ripped apart and crucified for treason against the Roman Empire. And so they are trying to find Spartacus. They go to the last remaining slave soldiers who they've captured and they're trying to find him. Let's take a look. Have we a count of prisoners? We haven't made the final count, sir. I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy, by command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain, but the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. One of the more famous scenes in movie history and they are not willing to let him go they are not willing to give him up they are willing to lay their lives down uh, in order to to defend him defend the cause and they all would every single one of them would be crucified alongside him but they were willing to do that because they loved him and because they loved what they were fighting for they were willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. They were willing to do that. And that sounds very Jesus-y, doesn't it? Even though that's not a Christian movie. And so as we look at our text today, let's take a look now. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it's a well-known passage that you'll be familiar with if you've been around church for a while. We're starting in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So where have you heard that lots in your life? Weddings, yeah. The most common way that we encounter this passage, Mike, I keep losing this, FYI, uh, is at a wedding. And so uh, it is the, maybe the most famous wedding passage. And so even people who don't go to church or don't know the Bibles, uh, they can be very familiar with this passage because we've just heard it so many times in our lives. And, uh, and there's a lot of good stuff in there for weddings. Of course, in a marriage, we are going to need patience. We are going to need kindness. Uh, we're going to need to keep no record of wrongs, right? Part of being in a marriage is all of those things. But the context of the passage isn't actually about romantic love at all. Uh, it's about the love that we share as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so not that there's not a lot of good stuff that's transferable to a wedding as well, but there's a lot of stuff in there that is much broader than just that. And the First Corinthian church, uh, when we read about it in Scripture, is actually a church with a lot of dysfunction going on. There's a lot of problems happening in the First Corinthian church. And as, they, as you read through the book, you're realizing, oh, there's sort of a little um, camps forming about who follows who. There are some saying, well, I'm a big fan of Paul, and some are saying, I'm a big fan of Peter. And so there's kind of that kind of division happening. There's sin that's happening that's really being kind of celebrated almost in the name of freedom, in the name of grace, in the name of forgiveness. Uh, they're not taking sin seriously, and so that's a big problem. And then as we move into the section that we're in right now, uh, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and says there's these gifts that God has given all of us. And those gifts are there for you to serve one another. And so some are given the gift of prophecy, and some have the gift of wisdom, and some have the gift of tongues, and on and on and on. But apparently what's happening in the First Corinthian church is that there's a lot of gifts being used, and there's not a lot of love going on. And these gifts are being used to be self-serving or to elevate certain people above others. It sounds like it's very kind of chaotic and there's conflict going on. So in the midst of all of this talk of here's how a church should function, Paul pauses in the middle of it and gives us this famous love passage. And it's about, in a church context, it's specifically what he's talking about, with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, it's not about gifting. It's not about uh, prestige. It's not about who you follow. It's not about any of that. Uh, if we don't have love for one another, we have nothing. If we don't have love, these gifts are nothing. If we don't have love, the church is nothing. And so the love that it's talking about is our love that we share as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's not specifically about the love between a husband and a wife. Again, not to say that we can't learn some stuff from there as well. We've talked in the series about how uh, when we're little, when we're babies, when we're born, when we're toddlers, as we grow, uh, we don't necessarily live a very godly life at that point. And I really struggled for a long time because most, uh, most streams of Christianity hold uh, to a, a doctrine called original sin or something like that. And it just says that we are sinful from birth, that we are sinful from the beginning. And for a lot of years, I struggled with it a little bit, only because, I don't deny that we're all sinners, but I struggled a bit just with this idea from birth, because I went, oh, but babies are innocent and, and kids are pure, right? Like, they're innocent from the ways of the world. And, and, you know, so, like, how can they really be evil? So I just kind of wrestled with it a bit that way, but I knew what the Word of God said. Uh, but this idea that babies are sort of inherently sinful, inherently selfish, was a real struggle for me. And then I had a couple. And I went, oh, I get it, I get it. No, absolutely makes perfect sense. 
Because, yeah, while it's true, of course, babies and of course children are, are in many ways innocent, in many ways, uh, you know, innocent to the evil of the world and pure and pure-hearted, of course, of course that is true. At the same time, as a first-time parent especially, it was not as shocking when the second one came along, but doing this for the first time, going, wow, I was surprised at how young certain things came up, uh, like lying. Like, we didn't teach our kids to lie. They just started lying along the way, right? We didn't teach our kids to be selfish. They were just kind of naturally selfish. The opposite, we had to teach them to share. You know, we never modeled for them, like, I don't hit my wife. We never showed anything to them where people were hitting each other. But from the earliest of ages, they would punch each other when they were upset about stuff. And I mean, my kids are pretty good kids. Like, it's not, these weren't behavioral problems. As I talk to other parents, we go, this is just kind of normal. And so while in some ways, yeah, of course, kids are innocent uh, and pure to the, to the evil of the world, at the same time, that almost makes the point more clear that because they're innocent, because they haven't been exposed to a lot, because they have not been caught up in the corruption of the world yet, oh, there is something in us that's just there. And, and we need to actually grow out of that. We need, as parents, to teach our kids to share. We teach them not to hit. We teach them to put others first. And it's not always a, an easy transition. It's not always a, a natural thing. It is something that we need to be taught. We don't always love well naturally. But this passage here given in Corinthians, it's, it's kind of the clearest single passage that talks about love. There's many that talk about love in the Bible. But this one's a pretty good one just to check ourselves against, to check our hearts against. Uh, to see how are we doing in this area. And if there's anything we touch on this morning where we say, wow, I am really bad at that, that is definitely not something that I'm good at, uh, that's okay if we are looking at that and then saying, okay, Lord, let's work on that then. I can see that there's a lack of this aspect of love in my life. I can see it in my relationships. I can see it in my marriage. I can see it in my walk with my kids. I can see it in my church, whatever but to say, okay, so what am I gonna do then to move forward? What am I gonna do then to do better? What am I gonna do then to grow in this thing? So Paul starts in verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, so he's talking about the spiritual gift. If I have the gift of tongues, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just noise, and nobody likes just noise for the sake of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so those aren't all the gifts. He could go on and on and on about the gifts, but he's saying, you know, it doesn't really matter how gifted I am. It doesn't really matter the talents that God has given me. It doesn't really matter even talking about himself as an apostle. Uh, none of that matters if the love thing's not there. And we are really, really bad, even in church culture, of elevating certain gifts above others and elevating certain people maybe before they're ready. And it's very easy to get caught up in giftings and talent and charm and charisma. But Paul's saying none of that stuff matters if that bedrock of love is not there. If that self-sacrificing, putting others first love isn't there, then all the gifting in the world doesn't matter. And actually what we see in churches over and over and over again is that uh, a lot of damage actually can get done when we elevate gifting above love, when we elevate uh, charisma above love. And we see, you know, great ministries can fall because we elevate and elevate and elevate and that person might be unbelievably gifted, but the love isn't there. And then something happens and everything falls apart and people get hurt. Like we see this over and over and over again. 
the stream I come from before I became uh, Mennonite Brethren was the Pentecostal church, the charismatic world. And that happens there all the time. That someone who's very gifted, incredibly gifted prophet, incredibly gifted teacher, incredibly gifted worship leader, whatever, gets elevated to this place. But there was something missing there that was important. And then there would be a moral failure or something would happen. And then it would all come crumbling down. And you go, yeah, that's what we do when we don't listen to what the Word of God says. That, of course, gifting matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. And Paul says it's not even the most important thing that matters. Because if we're functioning in our giftings or our talents or our character without love, then there's just way too many opportunities to make it about self. And anytime self kicks into the picture, others aren't in the picture. The Lord might not be in the picture in the same way. And then it's just, it's way too easy for stuff to fall apart. So we want to walk in our giftings. We want to grow in our giftings, but love has to be there with that. If there's no love there, then it's no good, Paul says. The gifts don't matter as much as a life demonstrated by loving other people. And then he explains what he's talking about. This is the kind of love he's talking about. This is a godly, Christ-like love. And he starts to just list, maybe not an exclusive list, but a bunch of qualities about that kind of love. Verse 4, love is patient and love is kind. And so that is one of those things that, again, yeah, of course, there's an application to marriage with that. Of course, in marriage, we need a lot of patience. In marriage, we need to be kind to one another. Of course, it applies there. But that applies to every relationship. In every relationship, it requires some patience. In every relationship, it requires some kindness. And so it's good for weddings. It's good for marriage. It's good for much more. And if I can look at my life and say, you know what? I don't have a lot of patience or I don't see a lot of kindness, then I need to be able to acknowledge, okay, so I'm out of step with love then in my marriage or in my friendship or in my, my church relationship or whatever that is. And these things can be a little bit just like uh, when we check ourselves against a list like this, they can be like a, a little indicator light. If I notice I'm losing patience a lot, that's like a light showing up on your dashboard where you say, okay, so there's a problem here then. And so what's going on under the hood? Lord, I'm losing my patience all the time. Can you show me what's going on there? Can you show me why that is? Uh, what's going on deeper? And, and help me to love better. Help me to love more. Because we know uh, God is love, and he's unbelievably patient with us. And so to live in a, a type of love that God requires and models for us, we need to be patient, and we need to be kind. And kindness is a word. When you think of the kindest people you know in your life, uh, there's a tone to that. Sometimes people say, well, the kindest thing I can do is rip you to shreds right now. I've been told that a number of times in my ministry. The kindest thing I can do is rip you down. And you go, we would acknowledge, of course, yeah, sometimes love can sting. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for someone is have a tough conversation. Absolutely. But sometimes that can also become an excuse for just being kind of a jerk. Because kindness has a tone to it. And, and again, some of us are naturally kind, some of us are not. If we're more of maybe the blunter, harsher type naturally, we go, okay, well, this is an area I need to grow in then. I need to grow in how do I share the truth in a kinder way, uh, in a more patient way, so that we can continue to grow in our love. Nobody has this list nailed down perfectly. We've all got stuff we need to work on. Moving on through verse 4, it does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. So love doesn't say, why did you get that and I didn't get that? Love says, hey, I'm really happy that you got that. That's what sincere godly love looks like. Love doesn't say, hey, everybody, look what I did. Pay attention to me and how amazing I am. Love's not proud in that way. And I don't mean proud. The scripture doesn't mean like, you know, you should be proud of your kids. Hopefully you can be proud of your spouse. It's the prideful thing, the self-centered prideful 
Love does not look to ourselves. Love looks outward. Love says, hey, what do you have that I can celebrate with you? I'm not going to be jealous about it. I'll be happy that you have it. Love says, I'm not going to boast in myself. I can boast in you, though. I can boast in what you're doing and what God's doing in your life. Love is not proud in that it doesn't look at me. It looks at you and says, how can I help you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you? And again, Jesus models it for us. He doesn't just teach us this, these things, and his word doesn't just teach us these things. Jesus shows us what that's like. And as Jesus comes, he washes feet. Like, there's nothing proud about that. This is the king of kings taking on the lowliest, most disgusting possible job that you could at that time. In a culture where you wore sandals out in the sweaty, dirty heat and humidity all day, uh, where you walk through dirt, you walk through animal stuff, you walk through everything, and then you would come into a house and get your feet washed, Jesus does that for his disciples and says, you now go and do the same thing. I am your Lord and your teacher, and I am not too good to wash feet. So no one in the kingdom of heaven is too good to take the lowly task, to take the low job. There's no pride in Jesus that says, hey, I'm entitled to not do this as king of kings, lord and lords, lord of lords. He says, even though I am king of kings and lord of lords, I will still take the lowliest job. And he models that and shows us this is what love looks like. Moving on through verse 5, love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So again, if I can't say this honestly about myself, any of these things, uh, that's the time to say, all right, Lord, I, I am self-seeking, to be honest. You know what? I do keep a grudge. I have a tendency to hold on to stuff. Or you know what? I do have an anger that pops up and, and I don't always forgive as I should. And again, just to say, okay, so I am not living out the perfection of godly love yet. And I don't know if we'll ever get there in this lifetime entirely, but we want to be able to say, okay, where do I go then from here? If I'm losing my temper a lot, Lord, why is that? Show me that. If I'm holding on to the grudge, if I'm not letting things go, if I'm very much keeping a record of wrongs that were done against me, Lord, show me why. Because I know that's not what you have for me. I know that's not the way you want me living. I know that's not the best way to live out love, as Scripture calls us to do. So Lord, show me the why. And then help me to do better. Help me to grow in this stuff. Uh, it's completely upside down to the way the flesh wants to live, to the way the world wants to live. If I have been wronged, I want to keep a record of that wrong, and I want that person punished for what they did. Right? That's what the flesh wants. Right? The world is all about self-seeking. You go yourself. You elevate yourself. You promote yourself. Right? We've talked often just about the, the social media culture that we are in right now, where I can post a picture of myself, just the best parts, making myself look the best possible. And if I look a little wrinkly in that picture, I can filter my face to perfection so that I look like a not-even-human person. And I'm not Instagramming the argument that I had with my wife. And I'm not Instagramming when I lost my temper at home. I'm not Instagramming the doubt that I'm struggling with in this scenario or whatever, right? Like we have this ability to promote only the best part that makes me look like the best possible husband, the best possible father, the best possible Christian, the best possible man. And, and you can filter it in a way that is just very unique to the age that we're living in. So our world is very self-seeking, very self-promoting. Uh, it is easy to dishonor others, and, and my flesh is easily uh, angered if I let it, and it wants to keep a record of wrongs. This is upside down to the way the flesh and the world and the devil want us to live. And yet when Jesus comes, he shows us a love in a way that is so beyond anything we can imagine. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. 
that when we were enemies of God, he came and laid down his life for us. That even though we had chosen our sin and we had chosen our own way and we had said we don't need him and we had rejected him and gone down our own path, Jesus still came in love and laid his life down for us. For a Christ follower, love looks like a cross. If you ever just need a really simple idea, what does love look like? It looks like this. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like I love you so much that I am not willing to be separated from you anymore. I love you so much that I am not willing to endure eternity without you. I love you so much that I am willing to come and suffer because of you and put myself into the same situation that you find yourselves in. Even though I am Lord and I don't need to do any of that, I love you so much that I will lower myself and I will suffer and I will die for you. That's what love looks like. There has never been a love like it. You are loved more than you can possibly comprehend. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was, I just pray that you will have power from God to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you will somehow be able to just get a glimpse, a grasp of how much love God has for you. And anytime we look at the cross, we can see it. That's what love looks like. And it's hard to fathom unless you really love someone in your life. Because if someone were to come to you and say, hey, would you go to a cross for your children? I think most good parents would say, yeah, I would. For the sake of my children, I would. So we get a taste of it. We know a little bit of what it's like. And so this love gets so totally pictured and personified at the cross. And it's a love there that is keeping no record of wrongs, right? It's actually wiping out all of our wrongs because Paul just wrote, real love looks like this. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's not easily angered. So we look to the cross and you go, this is where our wrongs got wiped out. This is where God's anger towards sin got dealt with. At the cross, God is showing love in every possible way and then says, now you go. You have received this grace. You have received this mercy. You have received this sacrifice. Now you go out for your brothers and sisters and you also forgive and you also love and you also sacrifice. You live out the gift that has been given to you freely. You don't just receive it. You receive it and then you live, live it out. A little earlier in 1 Corinthians 10:24, uh, Paul wrote, no one should seek his own good but the good of others. Like there's sacrifice involved in loving people. There's sacrifice involved. I mean, maybe very obviously in a family, uh, in a marriage, or with our brothers and sisters, or, or with our children. Yeah, of course we can see it there. But to, to say for anybody in our lives, to say loving that person will require sacrifice, that's what love requires. It's that it's not about me. And anytime I'm saying to myself, it's not about me, there's sacrifice involved there. And sometimes it's the sacrifice of putting up with something that maybe isn't my favorite. Sometimes it's the sacrifice of, of ignoring a wrong or forgiving a wrong that, that has been done against me that I, I maybe would love to hold on to. Like there's sacrifice involved when we say, I'm not seeking my own good, I'm seeking your good. And that's what Jesus did for me. He didn't seek his own good here on earth. In our first week, we talked about that from Philippians 2, that, that being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Being God, he didn't come to earth and say, I'm God, so I'm going to create a life of luxury and comfort for myself. But no, he, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He lived a servant's life. 
He lived a life of ministering to others and, and healing others and, and a life of poverty, a life of struggle, a life of suffering, a man of sorrows. He lived out that life for us and says, okay, well, if we are Christ followers, then we are going to follow in the way of Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Jesus lived a life of other-centered sacrificial love. If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we too are going to live a life of other-centered sacrificial love. We are not going to consider our own good. We are going to look to the good of others and how we can serve others. And so when I am marrying a couple, we go through a premarital counseling process and uh, and we often talk about this scripture and others like it. And I just say, in your marriage, if you are both going into it saying, well, what's in it for me? Where are my needs being met? You will endlessly have reasons to be annoyed and offended. Right? There's too many annoyances just in the day-to-day -day life of a marriage. Little things often, but there's just too many ways uh, in which we fall short. But the thing is, another person can't fulfill all your needs anyway. And that's a horribly unrealistic expectation to come into marriage with. And so if we both go into a marriage and we're saying, well, what's in it for me? How are you going to meet my needs? Here's all the ways in which you are falling short of meeting my needs. You're going to have a very contentious and a very difficult marriage. Now, if one of you comes into the marriage and says, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to make it about me. I'm going to make it about you and how I can help you and how I can serve you. And the other person doesn't do that. The other person says, well, I'll take it. Thank you. I'll take all the service of my needs. Then that's also going to be a really difficult marriage. But if we can both bend towards the other and say, hey, each of us is going to come in with this posture that says, it's not about me. What can I do for you? Right? How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I meet your needs? How can I encourage you? How can I bless you? When both do that, that's where we have a godly marriage. That's where we have a marriage where all the needs are going to get met as best we can in our humanness. We can't meet all of them. But people are going to be coming into this marriage and, and not constantly keeping a record of all the ways I've been wronged. Not constantly saying, here's all the ways that you've fallen short. But to come in and say, how can I serve you? How can I lay my life down for you today? If both do that, then we're on our way to a good and strong marriage. We're on our way to two people who are loving the way that Scripture calls us to love. And if that's not your marriage, then again, okay, so today's the day to take stock. How can I do better at laying down my life for my partner? And maybe we need to have a conversation about how we can do that better for one another in our marriages. But not just marriage, of course, in our, in our friendships, in a church, in, in any scenario. Uh, what does it look like to say, you know what, my good is not as important to me as your good? What does that look like if every single person in a church lives that out? My good and my will and my preferences and my desires are not the most important thing to me. Yours are going to be more important to me than mine. Like, what can that look like when, when Christians model that for the world? Jesus prayed, and it's a prayer that actually has not been answered yet, but as he came to the end of his life, he prayed that his people would be marked by unity, and that the whole world would see that and be amazed at how much unity there is in a church. I don't think we've arrived yet, but this is a, a start in moving more and more in that direction, right? When I start to say, you know what, yeah, I don't like this thing maybe, or I don't like that thing, or my preference would be this, or my preference would be that, but I'm willing to lay that aside for the sake of the group, for the sake of the family. I'm willing to lay aside my own thing for your good, for your benefit. And if I'm the only one who does that, or if you're the only one who does that, then that can be exhausting when everybody does that then all of a sudden we're starting to hit this level of love that Scripture calls us to in 1 Corinthians 13. Coming to the end, verse 6 and 7, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, 
It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And uh, so at this point in the list, you're probably saying, I am not loving amazingly well. I see some of them maybe where I'm doing okay. I see others where I need some work. That's okay. That's why we turn to the Word of God. The Word of God does its work in challenging us. The Spirit convicts us, and then we do better, right? Then we move forward. We try something else. So love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. Uh, it is always protecting. Love is always trusting, right? Love thinks the best of others. Love does not presume the worst. Love is always looking to keep safe and to protect. Love is always hoping for a better day. Love is always persevering, and maybe that's one of the best words when we talk about love, is love perseveres, right? Love says, I'm not giving up on that person. I'm not giving up on my kids. I'm not giving up on this. I'm not giving up on that. I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep trying, and I'm going to keep trying, and I'm going to keep trying, because love always perseveres. Francis Chan says this, true love requires sacrifice. Again, personified by Jesus at the cross. But if, if it is real love in a marriage, in parenting, in a church, there is going to be a sacrifice involved because I can't go around saying uh, it's about you. It's not about me. I'm not going to seek my own good. I'm going to seek your good without sacrifice showing up at some point. And ideally, hopefully, we are reaching the place of maturity where it's actually a joy to sacrifice for somebody else. It's not just like, oh, I want this and he wants that, so fine, have your way. I don't even care, fine. Go, that's the right action. The heart might not quite be there yet. Sometimes obedience, we start with the action and the heart follows. So sometimes that is the way that goes. But to actually say sincerely, without agenda or without anything else attached to it, uh, it's about you. How can I serve you? How can I help you? What are your preferences? What are your needs? What is your good and how can I help serve you for your good. What is best in a church context for everybody? Not just what's best for me, what's best for the family? What's best for the group? In marriage, what's best for my spouse? How can I best serve my spouse and lay my life down for them? All of these things, all of these love words, patience, kindness, all of it can require sacrifice, right? Because patience, when it's short, uh, it can be sacrificial to say, I can give it a little more. Right? Perseverance can be sacrificial, right? When I want to quit on somebody to go, I'm going to keep going because love always perseveres. Love always presses through. Love always keeps going. There's sacrifice involved. But when we look to the cross, of course, we say, there is nothing being asked of me in sacrifice that Jesus has not carried on a much greater level. There is nothing being asked of me in sacrifice that Jesus has not personally borne. And so he knows what it's like to sacrifice for those you love. He knows it on a level that we will never understand. And so we have this wonderful, beautiful example set for us uh, of Jesus that uh, when the world is telling us, hey, it's all about you, you deserve it. And when my flesh is saying it is all about me and I want what I want and I'm right and I know I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And when the enemy's whispering in our ear that like, oh, you know, why, why are you letting that person do that? Like, make it about you for a change that there's this upside-down kingdom. There is this way that's very different from all of that. There's a love that looks different than the world's love. It looks different than, than what the flesh wants. There's an upside-down way to go about it. Paul would write elsewhere in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
And you can see when that happens, when each of us actually does that, then everybody gets covered, right? If, if it's just me doing it or it's just you doing it, then it can be really frustrating. But if everybody is looking out for everybody's interest and everybody is valuing others and everybody is looking to the good of others, then everybody gets covered. And there's not as much fighting, and there's not as much bickering, there's not as much uh, selfishness in us that rises up. In a marriage, if everybody's doing that, that's a good marriage. In a family, if we can teach our kids to do that, that's amazing. Like, nothing makes me happier, honestly, when my kids are sharing. And especially when they don't have to be asked. When they have to be asked, they do that, fine. But when they do it on their own, like, it's just when they show that care and compassion, my heart wants to explode out of my chest. Like, it's so beautiful to see. It was our, our son Matthew's birthday this week. Um, pizza was on the menu, because that's the, the height of his culinary expectations. But uh, we were talking about what kind of pizza to get, and uh, he ultimately ended up getting subs instead, because he said, Dad, I can get a pizza sub. It's pizza and subs. It's both together. So, but when we were talking about pizza, he really likes Domino's. So we're saying what kind to get. And so uh, he really likes Domino's. And then he says to me, uh, no, dad, I changed my mind. I don't want Domino's. I want Pizza Hut. And he doesn't really like Pizza Hut, but I like Pizza Hut. That's my favorite. And I said, oh, buddy, it's your birthday. You want Domino's. He's like, no, I want Pizza Hut. He goes, daddy, that's what you love. And the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. And then he did say, no, forget it, I want subs, and we moved on. So there was a moment of beauty in there. But nothing, like when my kids are kind to one another, again, without being asked or without being forced or, or with the threat of discipline or whatever, but when they, when they put the other first, like it's, it's so incredible to watch when they, when they love one another in that way. And so this becomes, okay, well, how do I please my Heavenly Father? Right? How do I live in such a way that he is happy? How do I live in such a way that, that I am making his heart want to explode out of his chest, whatever that looks like for God? How do I do that in such a way that he is, is happy with me and pleased with me? We can live that out. Paul wraps up the section, love never fails, verse 8. Love never fails. Love is always the right choice. And it can look a lot of different ways. As we said, sometimes love means having a tough conversation. There is such a thing as tough love, and that's one of the things God deals with us in. God does tough love with his kids, for sure. And sometimes love means discipline, and sometimes love means consequences. I'm not suggesting we put any of that, side, that aside. But love is always the right thing to do. And, and if we're doubting the loving path, we need to read this section from 1 Corinthians 13. We need to read it again and again and again. We need to check our heart against it again and again and again. And if we're not sure what to do with a person in our lives or, or what to do in a scenario, we can pull out the Word of God and say, what does it mean to live out the Word of God in this scenario, in this situation? How do we live out God's word with whatever problem you're facing, whatever person is difficult, whatever struggle you are, happening, are having, we can look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, so this, this is what love looks like. We consider the cross and we say, this is what love looks like. So what does it mean to take cross-like love, to take 1 Corinthians 13 love and apply it to this scenario? Because love never fails. Love is always the right and it can look a lot of different ways, but it is always the right way to go. And, and that's the last point here, is that uh, we often talk about love as an emotion, and of course it is, but it has to go beyond that. That love is an action word, ultimately. It is a feeling, but it is also a verb. It calls us to something. 
And if I tell my wife I love her every day, but never do anything to demonstrate that love, you would be right to say, why do you think you love her? Right? If love is just something we're feeling, and if my marriage is full of poetic expressions of what love is, and the love in my heart, and it's like a, an ocean and a mountain, and, and all of the, the power and beauty of words to express the feeling of love, but then I just live a very, very selfish life after that, then you would be right to say, that doesn't seem like love to me. You're saying the right words, and maybe the feeling is real, but you're not actually showing it in any way. God didn't just say he loved us. He showed us he loved us in a powerful and, and incredible way. So love always has to be backed up with action. Love always has to, has to have something that goes along with it. We can't just say we love. We can't even just feel the love. Love is always demonstrated. Love is always shown. We have an email address at Meadowbrook Church questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions about the sermon, if you want to talk more about anything, please just drop us a line. We would be happy to go along and do that with you. The Apostle John talked about love a lot. Love is one of the major themes of what he uh, talks about both in the gospel as he's uh, emphasizing the love teachings of Jesus and in his letters as well. So we all know John 3.16, if you've been around church, for God so loved the world. Right? He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God loved us so much that Jesus came to us and he died for us and he rose for us and he calls us to live with him now and says, come and walk with me. Give your life to me. Walk in obedience to me as Lord. That's John 3.16. But there's also a 1 John 3.16. Uh, 1 John was a letter that John wrote after he wrote his gospel. 1 John 3.16 is also about love. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So if you just want a real simple definition of love, that's what love looks like. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So there is the love that God has shown us in the cross. Out of that love, we are to love brothers and sisters in the same way. As he laid down his life for us, we are to lay down our lives for others. And again, when we all do that, we all get to thrive in that together. Would you stand to your feet, please? We're going to close with a little bit of worship.